I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish, the show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you? I'm George DeMorellis and on the show today we have comedian, actor and all-round just absolute legend, David Quirk. How you doing, David? Hello, hello, George. I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, actually. So I guess a bit of background just for anyone listening, David Quirk, you have uh, been doing comedy for years and years. How, where did you start? How long have you been doing comedy for now? It's been 50 years now. No, um, I've been doing <laughs> comedy for... Fuck. Can I swear? Yeah. It's quarantine. Everyone's swearing. I think, yeah, fuck. I think I started probably like in 2001 or two, like did my first ever gig, you know, first gig, but really didn't get into it. So, I mean, I would say definitely 16 or 17 years probably. Definitely 16 years. Yeah. Were you still writing during that time or was it just kind of... Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to write other things actually i was trying to write ironically like like what we're talking about here kind yeah. of this book is short stories i was sort of started to write short stories i was trying to write my own stuff little bits and pieces for tv and stuff oh nice yeah this is i actually forgot about it until just when we were booking this in i was uh when i saw you in edinburgh when you were doing the bus in edinburgh if you remember that that was like that was several years ago now it was either 16 or 17 yeah 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 i was in the bus both years Oh, you were? Yeah, that's one of those, the purest Edinburgh show, I think, that exists. Venue, I guess. It's just the top floor of a bus. <laughs> it's double-decker bus, yeah, sick. Yeah, it's so cool. I was going to go back this year. I'd probably be there right now, yeah. I think. Is it all? Yeah. And um, obviously because of the pandemic, I didn't go. No one went. And uh, Bob Slayer, the dude who runs the bus, the brilliant man, asked me if I wanted to do it again. And I was, I don't know if I was arrogant or what, but I just felt like I'd, I'd outgrown the bus a little bit <laughs> and this new show needed something other than a bus, like I a mean, broom. It, it's fair enough. Yeah, yeah. There's a different kind of bus than a room. But yeah, that was, I love the bus. Yeah, no, I, I always love the shows there. They've got the best vibe out of everywhere. I love it so much. Yeah. That's yeah. no, cool. So yes, yeah, so we're on the show now talking about uh, your favorite books. You've, you've done, so you were freaking out a bit about picking one. You'd be surprised at how very, very common 
that issue is. Every time I do this, people are freaking out about which one do I, what do I want to say about myself today? <laughs> what do I want to say about me? But you've now settled. So do you want to describe what, what the book you've you've chosen or one mostly and a second one kind of? I did, I'm sure like anyone that does this, that freaks out and it's probably hard and maybe it's harder the more you read and I don't, I don't read enough. I probably started reading a lot more in my thirties, I guess. And for a long time, it was just like rock and roll biographies for what it's worth. Cause that was super entertaining. And I love that stuff. That's yeah, they're good. If you said, what's your favorite book? There's a chance I even picked one of them, a rock and roll bio for a second. I, I thought this one, this is special cause it is the first one I ever read. It what was, was it? Uh, to do with our oh, slashes biography. Ah. Slash from Guns N' Roses, yeah. And it was used heavily in a show I did back in 2013, so it's got this very special thing for me, that that book. But the truth is it's badly written and it's um, got typos, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I thought, well, let's ignore the whole rock and roll thing and let's go for something probably more literary. And I picked up some Raymond Carver thinking I'll talk about short stories that I love and that I wish I could write like maybe. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'll go, I'll go with some Raymond Carver. But then I realized that the book I'm reading now, sorry, too many tangents. I'm loving the build up. <laughs> I, yeah, sorry. This book here that I'm reading that I brought, A Manual for Cleaning, uh, for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin, is I realized when I bought it is the first time I've ever, this is the most sexist thing, the first time I've ever bought a female's writing. Like, I realised that everything I've ever read was male. Your whole life? Oh, well, no, maybe, like, that I've consciously bought it because it's rock and roll biographies. It's it's, it's Raymond Carver. It's um, Sam Shepard. It's, you know, they're just mm. these men, 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 white men normally, straight white men, yeah. you know, and... It's like, I know what I like, and it's looking at me in the mirror. Yeah, exa- yeah, it's it's not cool. I guess that's that's most, it sort of says what's, unless you go looking for it like I now do, what's available or what writers have been celebrated normally, and it's straight white men, right, like in anything in history. So I was reading that. This is, ironically, she's compared to um, Carver, and that was what got me got me onto her, but it's all short stories. That's the, you know, that's the book I'm reading. I can go into it a bit more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that, was that, my shameful, that was my shameful story about only reading men until recently. I've got to be honest, uh, terrible, but at least you're honest about it and you're trying to improve from it, I guess. But I could just imagine so many people hearing this and being like, you bloody symbol of everything that's wrong. <laughs> the patriarchy. No, totally. To- totally, I'm not happy about it, and I'm, in a way, I shouldn't have even admitted it. So I don't, you know, people don't hate me, but that's just the way it can be sometimes. Because you just look at, like, I, like I, I've really only read, I don't know, there's not even that many books up there that, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, you're looking behind you. You, yeah, you is uh, you got to talk to your girlfriend, lift your game. I might have to send you some great work. Half of those, some of those are gemmers, yeah, and and hers are all written by women. So <laughs> the irony, sexist in her own way. Uh, <laughs> No, Gemma just said that's not true. <laughs> um, <laughs> Didn't get away with that for one second. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, anyway, sorry if, if anyone's listening and thinks I'm pathetic. I guess you can't be better than you are, you know? You could just try. You can try. Yeah, And yeah, that's yeah. what I'm working on. Yeah, That's yeah, what I'm working yeah. on, Joy. That's, that's good. That's, that's true. That's a, uh, look... It's an explosive start to the show. <laughs> so this kind of reveal. <laughs> well, now let's go into it a little bit as well. So, like, it's just interesting that oh, you like a you're getting a whole different perspective you've never had before. Technically, like getting a female writer possibly because even because it's not just she's female, she's also 
it's a very much a book written about the female experience, isn't it? Because just like, so for a quick description of what it is, it's basically a bunch of short stories loosely autobiographical from her yes. life, which is very exciting and lots of stuff happened throughout her life. Is that roughly right? Yes, yeah, it is, it is. And she experienced, had bad experiences with alcoholism, chronic alcoholism and uh, spent, I think the last, her life is really interesting. The last eight or nine years of her life was on like a, a breathing apparatus and stuff. But it's, it's sort of autobiographical, which is one of the things I had sort of problems with because most of the stories are I, you know, I went into this, I did that. It's, never, it's re- only sometimes in the stories I've read, which is I've read maybe two th- two-thirds of them. It's from a, another character, even if it is based on her. It's, it's all very first point of view, which so I noticed someone like Carver probably never does maybe, which I mm. kind of like. You sort of read something that might be fiction. You can't really tell. The reason why I wanted to bring this book in today is because I read two stories. Some of them I didn't love. My first impressions of it, I wasn't loving the way the stories rolled out. But some of them made me laugh, even though I wasn't loving them, which I thought that's interesting. And then just the other day, I read two stories in a row that sort of blew my mind and were as good as any short stories I've ever read. And that's kind of why I wanted to bring it in today. Yeah. So you, do you read a lot of short stories? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Because I was wondering if it's uh, partially related to right now, the, the time we're living in with this coin. Because I've found myself actually doing more short stories. It's like, I don't know if I can make the commitment of a longer narrative. I kind of like resolving things yeah. a bit faster. I read one just when I had a coffee this morning and it was too short. I was like, oh, that's annoying. It was like too quick. And um, there's something amazing about getting to experience. Like they, they, one of the stories that I was just mentioning that was really excellent, I was surprised when I finished it. It's probably only six or seven pages long. Not only surprised, I was a bit amazed at the amount of feelings and emotions I went through in that time. I can't recall the last short story I read where I thought I knew what was going to happen and I was like, oh, this is the right, I feel how I feel about this and then how much that changed by the end of it. That made me realise how amazing she can be, Lucia Berlin, yeah. It's such a short time to actually get that, pull that much out of you. That's yeah, it. yeah, totally. Right. Uh, what was it What was it roughly about? What was, what made it, was there anything that made it hit specifically? It was a story called Friends by Lucia Berlin. And um, <laughs> so this is, it's about a, a character named Loretta and she meets Anna and Sam the day she saved Sam's life. That's how the story opens. Anna and Sam are old, like in their well into their eighties, almost nineties, mm. and she becomes she saved Sam's life once because he was I think he had something stuck in his throat. Blah blah blah. They become really good friends. She keeps visiting their house, and she sort of ends up feeling like she sort of has to go and visit them because he just tells these unending stories, and she just politely listens. And she thinks, well, I'm doing good stuff for them and they don't have anyone else but me. There's no son or daughter. And then one of them, he ends up in hospital soon after and it sort of looks like it's really bad. And yeah, so you're thinking if she, if he dies, the, this old lady will be really screwed because they, they won't have each other. And it's basically, so you start to feel really, really sorry for this old couple and the amount of time that this younger woman has to just spend with them. And she sort of can't ever get out of it. She's like, I don't want to go around there for supper today. But I guess I, I sort of should because they expect me to. And, and then at the very last page, it's sort of revealed that when she comes over, she knocks on the front door, they're not at an answer. She goes around the back to look for them and she can hear them talking just. She can hear their voices in the kitchen. And they're saying to each other, these old people, he goes, oh, I've got no stories today. Like, I, I feel so sorry for her that, her, that she's so lonely and I don't have any good stories to tell her today. And then the old lady says, don't worry, you'll think of one. And it sort of ends there. And it's this thing like where, 
you've just but yeah, like they they assume she's really lonely and they're doing her a favor. It's yeah. just cool. It's just. And that's I've explained it terribly, but it was just an amazing story I found. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Like, so everyone in it feels obligated to be there, and sorry for the other person. <laughs> no one's actually there for a good time. And it's just called friends. Does that like ring it? Does that ring a bell for you? Can you think of any situations like that? May no, not now. Now, not now that you can't visit anyone. Yeah, yeah. Sure, sure. Sometimes you know you sort of feel like a bleeding heart and you just do things for, yeah, maybe. To be honest, sometimes I can feel like I'm doing stuff for other people. It's like, oh, I don't want to be doing any of this. It's like I'm being really nice to everyone else. I can almost get on a high horse. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this for them. And it's like acting like I'm not getting any joy out of it at all. But then afterwards, I'm like, maybe I was enjoying that more than I thought at the time. For sure. Yeah, it's very sort of human, This the, the story. That's why I liked it. Are you the type of person who has like a huge... Bunch of friends, or are you more like small, little, deep connections kind of guy? I sort of, I, uh, you know that term they'll say about someone that they don't suffer fools. You know that classic saying. Yeah. I, I suffer fools very well, and you know, so I'm friendly to everyone, and it comes very naturally. I think it's from just the way I am, but also years of working retail. I reckon just can give time to everyone. Yes, but that said, I've got a few. Close, close friends, like, you know, brothers and sisters that I love to death, you know. But in general, I, I'll be anyone's friend until they've proven that they don't like me or vice versa, you know. Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's doing that? Come on. I've always not liking you. That's criminal. A homeless man on the street didn't like me much the other day. Anyway, that's all right. He had no time for me at all. <laughs> what happened? Um, and Lord, I tried. No, I, no, nothing. I sort of said, hey, I was skating and um, trying to film this trick and, Anyway, it doesn't matter. I totally. It sounds like it matters. I really want to know now. Oh, he was he was in a he was in a bad way. Oh, he's in a tough way. He, he was older. He was sort of hobbling along, and I just said, "Hey, hey, hey, man, how are you?" And um, he muttered something, and he was closer to my friend when he said it. He sort of mumbled, muttered something, and it, I didn't quite catch it though. And um, it turns out he was just uh, swearing his fucking head off at me. Just like, you fucking can't get the fuck away from me. You know, that kind of stuff. And, I was, okay. and I'm like, okay. And then he went and sat down on the spot where we were doing the tricks and we thought, well, we're not going to move him. Let's just leave. It's our first, first world shit. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah it's homeless guy sitting in the area where you wanted to record a skateboarding trick. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, you're building an interesting picture of yourself. I've got to be honest. I'm loving it. Considering just how full of love and friendly you are, this is a hilarious portrayal we're getting. Thanks, man. This is what you get when you're a skateboarder on the street. You just spend a lot, enough time on the streets, weird things start to happen, yeah. Yeah. Is there and I've been spending a lot of time on the streets during the pandemic. Yeah? So it's, it's re- it really is interesting. It's, a, it's uh, pretty outrageous because there's less uh, up, other people, less people going to work. And so it's just skateboarders and... And madmen. And... Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Very edifying. Yeah? How do you mean? I don't know. Just because it's like you, the rest of the world aren't there with you, you know? How do you explain it? I don't know. There's just something very real about just being on the streets like for hours on end at this time. Mm. Yeah. Like deep, deep, deep in the docklands. And yeah, a guy threw some, a can, an open can of tuna at me the other day. That was interesting. He started chasing after me. But I skated <laughs> off on him. I didn't do anything to him. Anyway. Okay. This is hilarious. Hey, you asked, man. Uh, no, no, I, I'm glad I did. It's uh, that's made me. It's made me smile. Yeah. Um, the to, to go back to the book, I guess. Keep it back on track. Is is it funny? Is it written funny? 
Is it meant to be? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it, like her turns of phrase can be very, very funny. There was something I read in a story the other day. Do you want me to give an example of like what I found very funny? Like I laughed out loud at this, okay. which I don't expect anyone else to do. The story just before this, Friends, the one before Friends that I read two in a row, is a story called Melina. It's far more sort of, uh, I found it more amazing than, than the Friends one, except it was just sort of tricked me a little bit, Friends, I guess. 137. But in this Melina, I think you should just read it, really. Anyone listening should just read this one. It's talking about this amazing woman that her partner knows or used to be with, a girl named Melina, and then she, throughout her life she keeps meeting these other people that turns out they all knew this girl named Melina. And she was really apparently an amazing person. And it says here, Bo, that's her partner, told me everything about Melina, about her childhood in foster homes, how she ran away at 13. She was a B girl in a bar. And then in brackets it says, I'm not sure what that is. And her husband had rescued her from it. So there's something about this guy's just explaining uh, she was she was in foster care. She was a, a bee girl in a bar. She was this and that. And she just says, she told I just the, the writing made me laugh because she doesn't even bother to ask what a bee girl in a bar is. Yeah. She's like, I don't know what that is. That, that made me laugh out loud. Yeah, and it's not even that funny, but, like, there's something about the way she sets things up. Oh, man, I get that. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I know that doesn't sound funny to recount that line, but that's very funny. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that a lot. I, like, I, I get so many moments where I'm like, that's hilarious. And then just trying to tell it. You can't do it without the context and stuff. And even the written versus talking is like, I think, a difference as well sometimes. Yeah, like even that, the fact that it's in brackets, it's like you're picturing it in a very specific way. You're taking in that information in a very specific way. I think, which makes it funny. Uh, did you, uh, actually, it's going to the writing stuff a bit, actually. So with your, like, now that you've said you've been doing more writing outside of the comedy stuff, but I guess starting with the comedy, when you write that stuff, do you write or with jokes generally or do you just get up and talk? Like, what kind of style do you, I guess, ascribe to? The story sort of, if it's a story or if it's a joke that has a story, and I guess the story should come first and, then, like, get that out the way or work it out first and then... Then if it's funny, great. But if you need to put jokes in, which is probably probably something I've never even tried, never done, I guess you can make it funny later. I've, I've sort of always known that. Like, don't worry about trying to be funny first. That's all. So do you do that writing it out or do you just talk it? With the last show that I would be doing now, I would have done in Melbourne and Edinburgh and Sydney and all that, it was the story, like a, uh, a true story, that I had to sort of wrangle into, because I could sort of see it all in my head. But I, yeah, I basically started writing it out and then writing it out in sections. Mm. And then I'd write, like there were these sort of fantasy moments that I had, had about this about this dude. And so I wrote that out. And, so, and then I just sort of cobbled it into, you know, an, all kind of an hour-long show. But it was probably the most narrative-driven thing I'd ever done. So that I feel like it's a good example of the shit that I do. But yeah, I write it. It's all written down, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because I was talking to like different, just interesting hearing different people's styles. Some people like do a little bit of writing and then they do most of the writing on stage. They just talk it out at lots of different times, gigging a whole ton. But then other people obviously prefer the more writing process. So I'm always interested in where people stand on that. For this show, I had to sort of, and I had time as well. So I sort of had time to sort of imagine it, sit with myself, write it down. But for, for other things that I've noticed 
certain bits of comedy that I've done, one in particular has sort of happened on stage, but it might even just be a note in my phone that, you know, just I've kept. And then I'll, you know, like see the thing happen, whatever it might be, note it down, and then I'll go home and try and see what it is. Half the time it's nothing, I've noticed. But um, yeah. Yeah. Mate, even if it's only half, that's pretty good. (laughs) It's a pretty good hit rate. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. Good odds. Nice. And there's other stuff you've been writing now. So has that been short stories and because... And TV stuff. Yeah. When I thought I was going to stop doing stand-up, I just thought, fuck it, I'm just going to make a book of short stories. And kind of influenced by someone like Lucia Berlin or Carver or Alice Munro, these kinds of people. Yeah, then I've noticed that it's that I started doing, like I needed to get the show off the ground, so I came back to that. And, but now, yeah, I think I finished my first short story the other day, actually. Yeah. Oh, really? A little, little bit of sort of fiction based on... Something that I kind of nearly did, yeah, yeah. I sort of imagined if I imagined if I'd done that, then I wrote a story about it, yeah, right. But yeah, so what I'd like to do is like get a bunch of these stories, fit, write them, and then like have them as merch or something, you know, just make a tiny little zine style book, maybe. All right, so then yeah, each year you can have the show finish and then have that as part of like something to sell. Yeah, but just have like some merch, that's, some merchandise that's like not just throwaway, you know, it's not just stubby hold or something, you know. Mm. Okay. Okay, short stories. I've tried my hand at it a few times and I've, uh, they go okay. Like are you going to get that stuff edited a lot before you, like you're going to get someone else involved to kind of look at it and stuff like that or? Great question. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, like I have one, well, my friend comes to mind to do that, but maybe I'd look into that really properly and get, Get a really good editor, knowing what I know about, you know, Raymond Carver and Gordon Leish and those, you know, about their story? No. What? Uh, Raymond Carver's editor, got a man named Gordon Leish. Have you ever read any Raymond Carver? Yeah, yeah. I read one of his, uh, there's, there's a really classic one I've read. There's a pool. Is there a pool? It's like his that most... Sounds like, sounds highly probable, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's a waspy family and there's a pool involved. Uh, like, it's very vague in my memory. Though. I had a whole collection of it, but I just never like got through it all. Not that I had anything against it. I just, I've only gotten to short stories more recently. Yeah, yeah, no, go back and check it out. Like, almost all of them are, are at least very good. Mm. Um, but his editor, I found out, like, when I started reading him, you're thinking, oh, this is excellent. And then you find out that the original text was nearly like at least a third longer and this Gordon Lish was just wholesale slashing things and that's what the final product is. So it's a combo of really good editing mixed with the writer writer's ideas, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Probably. so, yeah, so yeah, I, I think I'd need to maybe... It, it, well, because I've sort of got good at self, it's pretty good at in my own shows, like editing, because, I mean, comedians sort of need to be able to do that to a degree, right? And so mm. I maybe I'm, I'd probably use some of those techniques to get this this first story where I think it needs to go without having... Yeah, I mean, it's okay to just have some faith in yourself, I suppose. I'm saying yes and no to that question. Yeah, I probably should get someone. Then the other part of me is like, don't need it. Yeah, like as in... Well, to go back to that then, so with your shows, do you get someone to like... Do you run it through and they get someone to then help you cut it down and stuff like that or not really so much? Yes, yeah, yeah. I've had one guy I've always, like if I sort of compare like that Gordon Lish, Raymond Carver thing, I sort of have a similar relationship with me as the the writer and the performer with my friend Declan Fay. He's always been heavily invested in at least, he helped me work on three shows sort of officially and for the last few he didn't, like the one you would have seen in Edinburgh, he, did, he didn't touch. But I think I'd learned so much off him 
by that point, I worked out how to put a show together a lot better. And then with this new one, I also had it all ready to go and the story was so fully formed that I just went to him because it was sort of about my brother and uh, him being drafted to St Kilda in the 1980s for, for football. And I knew my friend Declan would love this shit because he's, he's into football and he's into writing. So I thought I'll, I'll run it by him. And there was this article that came out about my brother sort of talked a lot of shit about my brother because he quit he quit football before he even got a chance to sort of do anything with it. And I, when I quit comedy, I started I reread this article and it sort of blew my mind how much it sort of feels like it was written about me just oh. as a comedian, even though, yeah. And so I took it really personally and then tracked the author down and kind of stalked him and met him. And you know that's basically what the show is. And so I just thought this is fucking interesting story and so it was sort of it was was easy to make it funny once i analyzed it yeah ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So you actually found this guy who wrote this article for your brother in the 80s? No, 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 like late last year. Late last year. This guy wrote this article in late last year. He wrote the article in 2011. I think it was re. So he's he's about he's about my age. He's like mid to late thirties. This guy, which blew my mind, because I'm mean, how could he have commented on anything from the eighties? Yeah. But it turns out like he's just a fanatic. He's like a sports writer, and mm. he just loves that stuff. I became obsessed. I was like, who is this fuck? Who how dare this guy write <laughs> this shit about you know like like any journalist? You know, you sort of do they do they have the right? You know, yeah. and um. But then I realised that the more I wrote the show. And the more I was becoming obsessed with him and starting to kind of make shit up about the this writer, I realised I was becoming what I had. I was becoming a journalist, you know. And it's a very sort of ironic story about um, family and, I don't know, heroes and mm. failure and stuff, yeah. So did you, uh, like you mentioned that it was when you quit comedy, you, you kept looking at this article and seeing that kind of correlation. I guess, do you want to, like with the quitting comedy, was that like, were you doing that saying, I'm not coming back? Or were you saying like, I'm done for a while? Or I guess, what was your attitude going into that, I guess? It was like just doing, like doing something that you kind of, you, you, th- you love or you think you love 
something grueling though. Like I don't know what's a good example, but you finish it and you go, I'm not doing that again. And not certainly not for a while. It was just that kind of thing where I'm quitting. I don't know what that means. I'm just, I'm not, I don't want to think about doing that again anytime soon. So I, I sort of said I'm quitting, but then I thought, who knows what the future will hold. And the truth is I did, I do love it. And then this story came up and I realized I was sort of got so into it again. I was like, oh, it feels amazing that I've got these sort of skills or something that I can probably go back and tell this story now. So it doesn't matter if I'm sick of comedy or not because I've got this thing I want to do and want to tell. When you started comedy, did you, because you started like 2002, what you were saying, early 2000s, that's obviously before, I guess, in some ways it's, exceeding growth in popularity in the last like 10 years comedy sort of so like when you started it was that a case of you just needing an outlet for your creativity or something or I guess why did it start in the first place well it started because I was studying uh, a thing called performance studies and I just had to give a performance about my identity that's right it was called performance on identity was the name of the class I had to give a final performance and it could be anything. It could just be any style of performance. It could have been dance. It could have, you could have acted out a scene. You could have done something really obscure. And the, the lecturer, she knew that I was into stand-up comedy. Like I liked it. And she said, why don't you, and I had no way of doing it. She said, why don't you do it as a stand-up sort of gig? Why don't you do it as a stand-up performance? And I said, okay. And so I did. And you know, it was like three or four minutes long, maybe, or maybe five. And People were laughing. It was just it was super autobiographical stuff. It was kind of like what I do now, and I just thought, oh, that really, yeah, this is a good medium. This works. It's something I already like, and I just did it. So let's keep doing it. I kind of kept doing it. Yeah, yeah. So that, so that's how it came to be. Yeah, my style, I suppose. Yeah. Had you done much creative, like creating your own stuff before then, or was that kind of like the first time, kind of writing? even though writing is autobiographical, but still writing something and having it performed in front of people. Maybe, yeah. Like working with like my own like so-called script or something because I'd, yeah. I'd done theatre. I'd done like a bunch of plays. And then that's what I set out to, thinking I was doing was to be an actor. And I sort of compare it to like, you know, the term singer-songwriter, like, you know, a, a Bob Dylan or a, like a Patti Smith or something where they write they perform what they write. And like, it sounds so obvious, but I guess that's what a stand-up comic should be. It's like, it's just the, it's the one thing in all together. It's ready to go. It's the inside mm. the brain and the performance on stage live. Yeah. So I think it's very cool. Yeah. I mean, I still remember the first time when I did, I was like, oh, this is so cool because I hadn't had that experience of, yeah, where you, 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 I made this thing and put it out there and people are laughing or responding how you hope they would. And you're like, this is, this is a nice feeling. I guess what Absolutely. I Absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that sort of doesn't really go away, does it? It's important to remind, like sometimes I'm like, I got to remind myself that like, I do love that a lot. Like as in sometimes when it's uh, feeling a bit, well, like, like probably like when you had your experience of a bit of a burnout, you just like, you can kind of forget. Here's me saying, here's me saying it doesn't really go away. And I was like, it clearly did. <laughs> um, no, but it was, uh, the, the, actual, the actual standing up in front of a crowd never, that never really went away. It was just all the, politics and the lack of income and sort of the bullshit that went with with it is why I got sick of it. I never had a problem with stand-up, really. Feeling a bit like you're going in a circle and not just the same stuff over and over, over, and over again? I feel that, like, I hear comics that say um, just that, like that it's the best thing in the world and that they live for it and stuff, and I think they're probably a little bit crazy too. But, you know, because it is kind of one of the best things in the world, but just I need to balance. It's not just the, it can't just be the only thing. It's pretty unhealthy. That was the other thing, like 
when I realised I was just mining everything in my life for jokes, I thought this is probably not actually that healthy way to live. You know, for a long time, you sort of it sustains you. It, yeah. So yeah. that those are the things I learned after years and years of doing it. You know, to try and do what's what's sort of healthy inverted commas. You know. <laughs> Yeah, or at least healthier, yeah. That's healthier good. or just less less destructive or something, you know? A bit more balanced. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and that's the problem with being like a I guess I never set out to be an autobiographical stand-up comic, but that's kind of what it tends to be. And the more you do that, that the the trickier it can be, you know, for the psyche. Yeah. I can understand that. So with that break now, I'm just thinking because like you've you've for recent TV stuff you've done, you're you're on Rosehaven, right? That's uh something you're on. Recently, pretty. Yeah, uh, yeah. Has that has that kind of helped? Like, feel like oh, maybe there's a bit of a step in the right direction, and helped you kind of feel like oh, maybe I'll uh, like it starts feeling like something different from what you were doing before with the comedy. Like, oh, there's new avenues now, new hookups, new people to talk to and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I set out when I was in my early twenties and in like late teens to be a, an actor, and that meant you know, theatre meant if I could do TV or film, I'd do it. But then, the, then it's as I've sort of said, it sort of morphed into doing stand up. And then through doing all this stand-up, I noticed that roles on TV started to come from that. Just because I was, I guess, I was, I was known a little bit or people knew I could at least be a comic actor. But I just saw myself as just an actor. Even when I was in 2017, when I was sort of bummed out on it and sort of walked away for a while, I think I still did like that, whatever season that was of Rosehaven. They got me over to do a few few scenes at least. Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. You know, that was, that's still one of the coolest things that's happened to me because... It was an ongoing role in a you know really quality show. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good time that show. Really, yeah, yeah. thanks, man. Yeah, no. yeah, Celia and Luca geniuses. <sighs> Look, I don't want to go. If I go too far with any of these questions, just let me know. But I just find it interesting that that period, I guess, which can happen to everyone, of like, oh, why am I doing it? This feels so the same, and what am I doing? And questioning that kind of path, I just find that like an interesting place to be, and like how you deal with that. Um, because I think everyone probably yep. goes through it at some point. Uh, sure. So I guess yeah. So the the rose heavens like it, it just took you. You just need a time off, basically, from what it sounds like. Yeah, but I mean that th- things like Rosehaven could have, and any other TV work that it may have happened at that time could have not been there. You know, but yeah. I would have still quit the same way. I was, I went and got a, I went and got a job. I went and worked. I was doing uh, Uber Eats on a bicycle for a little while. I, I was working for five or six months as a bicycle courier just before the pandemic. I lost that job. So I was working even just recently, even when I wasn't bummed out on comedy. So I'm just saying I needed to do, I needed to just quit doing festival shows, definitely. I needed yeah. to stop doing that. And so whatever that meant didn't matter if I had to get a job. I was working jobs on and off throughout the last 15 years anyway, mm. you know, because, well, because for obvious reasons, it's hard if you're a weird comic, even if you get good gigs sometimes on TV like I do, um, you can't live off that money, you know? Yeah, it's a, and Australia as well is probably not the uh, not the biggest market, not the deepest, I guess, when you compare it to like the UK and stuff. Have you ever thought about going hitting the UK? You could do some stuff in the UK. I've thought about it a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, I was, yeah. was going to move to the U, to London in 2008 or nine, but my mother got sick and, and died and I stuck around for that and... Yeah, I've thought about I've thought about moving to America even, but that that's <laughs> looking unlikely <laughs> even more now. Yeah, it, like all of a sudden it feels like Melbourne, Melbourne's actually a great city, which it always was. But and I live in in this anyway. What am I talking about? I, I would have loved to have done something in the UK for mm. live there for a year would have been good. I think yeah, maybe down the track maybe. Yeah, 
So as an option. If things, if things uh, change. Yeah, if we can leave our houses again. I'll wear a mask. Yeah, the, I, I guess the other one I was wanting to ask, because you did mention you were tossing up between this, uh, the book you've mentioned here with the short stories, but the other one was uh, this philosophical work from this French writer. Yes. How do you Jean... Jean Baudrillard, yeah. We're going to have to talk about that one? Well, we don't have to. Um, I'm feeling bad because he's another male. <laughs> that's the vibe. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> you already admitted. We just took the title because the spirit of terrorism. I mean, it's a bold name, isn't it? It's, it's, it is bold. Like when you said, I was like, oh, this is going to be an interesting chat if you go with this one. I'm, I'm out of my league, really, but it's also it's kind of simply written, but it's also very, very short, but uh, still very tricky. Yeah. Right. And, but so why, why was that like one you really liked? Was um, it was when I was studying that course back in the early 2000s, performance studies, Baudrillard was a, one of the philosophers that we were, we were told, we were taught, and he's been around forever. He died, I think, I want to say 2008, maybe. Maybe it was mm. earlier than that. But he, he was always a really strong sort of critic and had a really strong interest in the US. And for a French person, that, that, that alone is kind of interesting, especially a French, French sort of radical thinker. So this book is, the first part of it is specifically about the collapse of the Twin Towers and, and terrorism surrounding that. It was written late in 2001. So like he just was like, oh, this happened, then he started writing about it. So it doesn't go into anything about um, the conspiracies around the towers themselves, um, which I think is okay mm. because it wasn't talked about at the time maybe. But, yeah, there's, once you get past the first essay, it's got a thing called the Requiem for the Twin Towers. And the way, it's more the way he writes about the way a, a French philosopher sort of saw this event is what is so fascinating about, about this book. Like he says... Just seeing a really different perspective. Yeah, yeah, and just not, just not written by an American or like some Trump supporter or something like that, you know? He says here, which I've always found interesting, do you want me to read to you, George? Well, oh, it sounds like a lovely way to spend my morning. You're being sarcastic. No, no, I'm serious. No, no, I'm serious. <laughs> like, it, please do. He says here, we, when he says we, he means us in the West. We believe naively that the progress of good, with a capital G, its advances in all fields, the sciences, technologies, democracy, human rights, correspond to a defeat of evil. No one seems to have understood that good and evil advance together as part of the same movement. The triumph of the one does not eclipse the other. Far from it. In metaphysical terms, evil is regarded as an accidental mishap. This axiom, which, uh, from which all the machinations forms the struggle of good against evil derive, is illusory. Sorry, that's a tr- it's very hard to read, but it's sort of also easy to read. Mm. Good does not conquer evil, nor indeed does the reverse happen. They are both irreducible to each other and extricably, inextricably interrelated, mm. which I think is interesting. It's interesting because we, we sort of go, we've got to beat the bad guys when it's sort of, he's just saying that it's all good and evil are just sort of the same, are moving together all the time and they sort of never changes. It's, I, I, like, I find it very interesting that someone would bother to put that into words, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, it is interesting you're saying like as in it's not, one isn't the removal of the other, I guess, in a way. When you wish it, maybe you wish it was, but yeah. But in this, uh, the Requiem for the Twin Towers, it's interesting how he, how he sees the towers themselves. He says here, the collapse of the towers is the major symbolic event. 
Imagine they had not collapsed or only one had collapsed. The effect would not have been the same at all. The fragility of global power would not have been so strikingly proven. The towers, which were the emblem of that power, still embody in their dramatic end, which resembles a suicide. Seeing them collapse themselves, as if by implosion, which I guess would later be discussed in conspiracy theories, one had the impression that they were committing suicide in response to the suicide of the suicide planes. Um, were the two towers destroyed or did they collapse? Let us be clear about this. The two towers are both a physical architectural object and the symbolic object. Mm. It's, in, it's very interesting. That's, that's super interesting. It's, it's, and it's wildly different to your other choice. And choices in general, I guess. You've gone from like an autobiographical uh, story of someone living a varied life, which I could almost see similarities with you, even the gig economy side of things. But then we've got something like this, which is a very heavy, intense geopolitical treatise, which, and this, is, and this one's way older as well, right? So you learned about this years ago, this book. Yeah, I probably read this in the mid-2000s. And then I bought my, this copy when I was in America uh, brilliantly, uh, in 2015 at a, at a bookshop. And I was, I thought, cool, because I'd read a friend's copy. Yeah, it's just really, it's just, it's just amazing. That's why I thought I'd bring it. I, I would almost call it one of my favourite books. But then I thought I'd look it up because I thought you probably had to look it up just to learn a bit about what the book might be, right? Mm. And so I looked it up and there's these two pretty amazing little uh, short paragraphs that are reviews and then one that just says first prize for cerebral cold-bloodedness goes to French philosopher uh, Jean Baudrillard. It takes a rare demonic genius to brush off the slaughter of thousands on the grounds that they were suffering so severe ennui brought about by boring modern architecture because <laughs> he does he does actually make that case like he sort of <laughs> says yeah it's pretty gnarly like he actually does go on to say that yeah, it is kind of cold-blooded. He says something, and I'm paraphrasing heavily, that the, the people, anyone that was sort of worked in those buildings, like their, their lives were sort of trapped uh, in, by in, inside this sort of architecture that speaks to world power and mm. um, you know, capitalist uh, society, really, and it, it, like the horrors of that. It's, it's sort of matched by the way the buildings fell. And, yeah, it's... it's I can see how a lot of people would hate it as well or be offended by it. With that, I guess the one thing that's sticking out to me is the concept of this cold-blooded cerebral look at that. Would you feel like maybe you've got elements of, because I know it's a stand-up thing where you kind of almost stand outside yourself when looking at things and you're saying how you were doing that so much, even leading up to when you took your break from stand-up. Do you feel like that's maybe an element of what you do? Maybe like, you know, that idea of almost being cerebral about something too much? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I suppose, I think that's, uh, it's not the artist's job to to offend for the sake of it, but I don't think that's what he's doing. But he's challenging, and I think that's what the, the comedian should do, to at least challenge. Yeah, a bit, a bit. Be funny, by all means, and certainly, but... Um, it's in the it's in the title, but that's what the the French philosophers or what I know about them are towing these people. You just have to you have to do it at any cost, sort of, yeah, because that's the that's your job. Okay, so do you feel like you're saying some stuff like that when you are on stage with what you write, what you say? No, no, not not on the same <laughs> level. No, I don't. But it's, I guess something like it though. Oh, like maybe just challenging the norms a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can think of just off the top of my head, I just thought of a bit, the new bit that I thought 
it really upsets people. But I completely believe in it. So yeah, you know what I mean. You're playing to you're the inner Bo- Brodolard. How do you how do you say it? Baudrillard. Baudrillard. You're playing to your inner Baudrillard. You're doing him proud. By the sound of it, <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like we've actually captured between these two books both the autobiographical element of yourself and the more cerebral analytical part, funnily enough. Yes, yes. Maybe that's why I subconsciously chose these two books. I'm definitely spoon-feeding you that. But it's it's just interesting because they're so very, very different from each other and uh, but they do seem to feed aspects of yourself. Yeah, yeah. I I hope I've done something in this chat to take the edge off or to at least let the listeners know that I'm reading women. (laughs) <laughs> I have a girlfriend. She's cool. <laughs> she's uh, cool. She's she's white. Oh, Dan, she's straight. But I'm working on it, guys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> doing your bit. It's uh, funny. Uh, well, look. I guess uh, we can close it off there. I do usually end with the same question, which is: Did you feel like you've learned anything new about your relationship to these texts from this chat? You can no. <laughs> okay. Um, <I> don't, <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but um, I mean, one of the books I haven't even finished, I've still got a handful more stories to read in uh, Lucia Berlin's uh, book. Mm -hmm. And Baudrillard, I think I'll read that again now that I'm looking at it. And I I do wonder, just quickly, I know this is meant to be finishing, but... No, that's all right. Take your time. I can can see how people could easily attack that that philosophical reader, especially now, not just because it might be cold-blooded, uh, but also time's gone by and we know that there might be other reasons why those towers collapsed the way they did, or at least people suspect maybe. And so, look, maybe it could, be, it could be debunked, but as a piece of writing about a real event, it's really interesting. And I'll probably learn more if I buy rereading it. But I would say I've enjoyed chatting here today, George. Yeah. No, it's been a good time. I, uh, but I just got to ask with your... So were you saying that the conspiracy theorists behind is that what you're, you're bringing up? Saying like the fact that the government might have blown up the buildings itself? Is that what you're referencing? Uh, no, I don't know. But there seems to be... There's a lot of evidence to say that um, buildings shouldn't have fell down from that, those planes hitting them the way they did. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to believe. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think there's been some pretty good debunking of it as well, though. That, that those theories. Yeah, right. Okay. But I'm not sure. Like, I'll have to might find a link for it. Yeah, just because it's always tempting to put a conspiracy behind something like that because it's so big and bold. Like, I I do think there was probably warnings in place. People would have known that a plan like that was good possibility. And hey, that's not even going to who started what. But I think directly. Yeah, I don't know about direct conspiracy though. That's a part of Moyes. No, I don't. I don't either. I don't. I I don't either. I um. Yeah, I just saw something about you know the the bomb that went or the explosion in Beirut, Mm. and how you saw the enormity of that um, fucking explosion, Mm -hmm. and how how full on it was, and the the building that was quite near it, like right next door to it, to where the explosion happened, didn't get knocked over from that explosion, and someone, a conspiracy theorist, was pointing out like that explosion didn't even knock this building over. And yet, you know, the Twin Towers, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it just, I, hey, it just makes me wonder, you know. So, <laughs> so for, for, every de, for every debunking, there's still, it's like good and evil. The conspiracy theories get better as the proof gets better as well. It's, yeah. it's hilarious. Yeah, the good and evil extends at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's They're like both. the moon landing. Like I, be- I believe it absolutely happened, but I, you know, hey, I just saw it on TV. You know, that's a bold position. <laughs> it's like I'm just asking questions, man. Just asking questions. 
<laughs> yeah, it's how do we how, how do we know anything, man? I oh, know. I guess <laughs> you've done, you've done that. I can see why you like the philosophy, I'm but too crazy today. No, that's all right. It's been a lot of fun. Um, so yeah, so we'll tie it off there, I guess. So thank you very much for being on. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dave. Thanks, George. Yeah. All the best, man. Thanks, man. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.